0: Oh, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Who are you? Who are you? Who am I? Who are you? How do you usually answer that question when someone that you're meeting for the first time says, who are you? And you have a chance to introduce yourself. Well, if you're American, you probably begin with your name and you maybe you tell people what you do, uh, whether you what your job is or what kind of work you do, or maybe if you're a student, you might tell them where you grew up. Here, that's a something we all want to know about people we meet. Where did you grow up? Where are you from? Often when we answer that question, we want to give answers that make us sound at least respectable and maybe important. So maybe you tell people what your titles are or your accomplishments because you want them to understand not that you're just respectable, but that you're also someone to be taken seriously. If you're from another culture or if you're in a different cultural setting, People will often introduce themselves by telling you along with their name, they'll tell you who their parents are or what, what family they're part of because it's really important in other cultures to know what family you're part of. That's, that's where you uh, come to seem respectable or maybe honorable. And so it's important to connect yourself with a family. I once uh, met a group of people who introduced themselves something like this. Each new person I met in this group would say something like, hi, I'm Andrew, I'm a son of God, a saint. I was a sinner, but I've been saved by God's grace. And I'd never met anybody who introduced themselves like that before. So it was a little jarring to me. uh, You know, my German ears a little more restrained, you know. Uh, But it was kind of interesting. I had never met a group of people. They all introduced themselves in that way. But I think that that introduction actually raises a a good question for us, which is, is our identity in Christ, is the fact that we're followers of Jesus um, at the core of who we are? Is that right up front about who you are? Or is that something that's several paragraphs deep in your biography? Something that you only want people to know about you if absolutely necessary. I have sometimes thought that when I'm making major decisions in my life or when, when I'm evaluating how I'm doing in my life, I have thought, you know, I want to live my life in such a way that it doesn't make complete sense to people who are understanding or learning about my life story with, if you didn't know that I was a follower of Jesus, I want my life to have some things in it that you'd have to say, wow, I wonder why he did that. And the answer would be, well, he did that because he was a follower of Jesus. He was on a different path living by a different set of values. Back when I was in my late twenties, I was a graduate student at the university of Michigan in Ann Arbor and um, I, uh, I rode the bus to work every day. It was about a 30-minute ride. They had a really good bus transportation system there, so we were able to get by with just one car. And I rode the bus uh, into work every day, and I, I liked to read. And so commuting was terrific for me because I got to do a lot of reading. One of the books I read back then was the biography of a Welsh Christian, a man from Wales whose name was Rhys Howells. Reese Howells is from the early 1900s, and he's somebody who was an intercessor. He spent hours in intercessory prayer and felt like God guided and directed his guided and directed his intercession, and was actually you know, sort of communicating with him about how to intercede and how long to intercede. But what really stood out to me about his story, since I, that wasn't really my experience, I was inspired by. But it, what, what stood out to me about his story was that the author of his biography says that he. Um, He had a kind of an aura about him, Reese Howells did, that you could just tell he was a man of God, even if he didn't say anything. Just by being around him, you could tell that he was a man of God. And being a young man, bold and full of courage, I decided that I was going to ask God to make that true for me. I thought, well, that would be really cool if you could just So to have an aura of godliness with you, not not in a weird way or, you know, put people off, but, you know, just in a way that people would know this is a serious person. This is somebody who radiates the presence and the character of God. Well, that prayer didn't work out quite the way I imagined it would. One day, sometime after I started praying that, I was on the bus and reading and a young woman got on the bus. And uh, she sat close enough to me to talk to me. Now, if uh, if you have been a commuter, you know that one of the unwritten rules is that you don't unnecessarily initiate conversation with strangers, right? We're all sort of strangers together and uh, you can talk to people you know, but you don't usually talk to strangers. But this young lady was a stranger to me. Soon after she sat down, she looked right at me and she said, you're a Christian, aren't you? she caught me so totally off guard that I I, I, didn't, know how to say, I, I didn't know what to say. Um, I don't remember exactly how I answered her, but I know it wasn't a warm, yes, thanks for noticing. It wasn't that kind of response. I, I kind of fumbled and I stumbled and I, I, I looked away. Uh, like I said, I don't think I denied being a Christian, but I think by my body language and the way I responded, I think i let her know that I, that was not something I wanted to talk about right there and right then. Um, and so she sat there awkwardly and I sat where I was awkwardly. I think she got, after, uh, got off a few stops later. But it was only after I got home a little while later that I, re- I remembered my prayer that people would be able to sense the presence of Jesus uh, with me, that I was a follower of Jesus when they were around me. And, and I was ashamed of myself. I thought, you, you know, God answered your prayer or, you know, it was something of an answer to your prayer. And I, but I realized I was Peter, I had effectively denied, I didn't actually, you know, said the words, but basically I denied an opportunity to talk about Jesus and his role in my life. And, and there wasn't even a threat in that situation to me were saying yes, I could have said yes. And I mean, she wasn't asking me in a threatening way. She was just uh, asking for information. And I think maybe wanted to start a conversation. And I, I just totally, totally dropped the ball. But it was one of the times in my life when I realized that you have to be careful what you ask for in prayer right? You have to be careful what you ask for because God might answer your prayer and he might answer it in a way that catches you completely off guard. That, that works out entirely differently than the way that you, thought, that you imagined when you prayed that prayer. And yet later you realize, well, that was an answer to what I prayed. So that's a life lesson I've carried with me. Be careful what you ask for and be ready for the answer to come in a little different form than what you might have imagined. So, who are you? Who am I? How do we answer that question? I want to answer that question this morning for you by looking at the passage that Brad read for us from Ephesians two. In Ephesians two, Paul answers that question for us. <laughs> you might want to open your Bible, or if you have a phone or someplace where you have the, you can have the text in front of you. I'm going to be skipping around a little bit there, so uh, we're not going to skip around on the screen. But if you have it and you want to follow along, you'll notice some things that I, you'll be able to notice some things I point out. Pastor Matt Smith in his sermon on this uh, uh, passage gives us a really simple but very helpful outline, I think, to help us understand what Paul is saying here. And it's just three simple phrases. Three simple phrases. You are, the first one, you meaning you together, or like we, you are, but God, I'm sorry, you were. I even practiced this. You were, but God, we are. So that simple phrase, you were, but God, we are. We'll see that as we look at this passage. Let's start with you were. In verses one to three, Paul says you were dead in your sin. You were trapped. You were spiritually dead. You were stuck. You were defined by your weaknesses, defined by your failures, defined by your brokenness, and far from God. Hope was fading for you, for us, because we were dead in our sins. You may remember the sermon from several weeks ago when I said that there is sin and there are sins, right? There, there, there is sin and there are sins. We commit sins because sin rules our lives. In other words, there's an underlying condition in the world and in our hearts, in our lives called sin. It's an ongoing condition and it's the expression of that condition that shows itself in, in specific sins. So it's when we're in the grip of this underlying condition that we commit sins. And our life then is full of failure and darkness. In Ephesians 2, you can see that Paul's talking about sin, this condition, in several different places. In verse 2, he says, you used to live in sin. That's a a condition. You used to live in sin. Verse verse 3, he says, you used to live that way. It was a way of living for you, for us verse 3, it says, because of our sinful nature, often when Paul talks about sin as a condition in the New Testament, he refers to our sinful nature or our sinful flesh. The end result of that condition is uh, expressed in different ways. In verse 1, he says, one of the expressions was that we were disobedient. We committed many sins, he says. That's the outworking of the condition of sin. Verse 2, he says, we obeyed the devil rather than obeying God. Verse 3 says, we were trapped by our passionate desires. Later on in Ephesians in chapter 4, Paul refers to the condition of sin or what we were as your former way of life. Or he refers to it as your old self. That's who we were. Now, some of us are still living this way. Some of us here, or some of us watching online, perhaps, maybe this is still the condition of your life or your heart. You're still trapped in your sin. If that describes what life is like for you right now, I have good news for you in just just one more moment. Give me a moment. I have good news for you. Because Paul is writing this letter, this letter that uh, is sent to the church in Ephesus. He's writing primarily, he's talking to people who have accepted the gift of salvation that is offered to us in Jesus Christ. Paul's writing to people whose sins have been forgiven and in whose lives the power of sin has been broken because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Our sins have been forgiven and the power of sin has been broken in our lives. So Paul is reminding his his audience and you, if, if this is describing you as well, in verses one and three, He's describing what we were. He says, You were trapped in sin when God stepped in. So in verse 5, he says, Even though we were dead in our sins, we were dead in our sins, even though we couldn't see a way out, we didn't really believe anyone cared about our shame, our brokenness, or our pain. He says, That's what you were, but God, but God stepped in. God stepped in with mercy and with his love in verse 4. God stepped in with his grace and his kindness in verse 7. He stepped in to offer us a way out. The free gift of a way out. It wasn't an accident. God didn't accidentally give us a free way out. It wasn't something that God owed us, and it wasn't something that we could have earned. It's a free gift that God offers us because of his mercy, his love, and his grace and his kindness. This was simply an expression of the self-sacrificing love of God. It was, something he, was not something he had to do, was not something that completed him in any way. It came out of who he was. And that's the good news I promised you just a moment ago, that God, the, cre- the God who created the universe, the God who is sustaining and reigning over everything, turns out to be a God who is merciful, loving, gracious, and kind. So much so that he's already done everything that's needed to be done, that needed to be done in order for your sins to be forgiven, and in order for the power of sin to be broken in your life. God has already done everything that's needed in order for those two things to happen. And that means that if you are a follower of Jesus, if you have received this free gift of forgiveness, and the broken power of sin in your life, if you've received this free gift of salvation, you are no longer the main character in your story, in your life story. Have you thought about it that way? If you have received the gift of salvation, you are no longer the main character in your life story. God is. God is the main character in your life story because you would not be who you are if you are in Christ, except for the mercy, the love, the grace, and the kindness of God. Now, that sounds a little strange to us, we who live in the Instagram era where, you know, it it was really all about me, you know. (laughs) I want you to know about myself, who I am, and how important I am, and how interesting I am. But the truth is that if you are in Christ, you are no longer the main character of your story. Your life story no longer makes complete sense without highlighting the mercy and the love and the grace and the kindness of God. I also don't want you to miss the very important verse 9. In fact, I'm going to ask you to read it out loud to me, out loud with me. We're going to put it up on the screen. Verse 9. Let's read this together. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. It's very important to remember that your salvation, what God has done in your life, is not a reward for anything you've done. All you did was receive it as a gift. All you did was receive a gift. God did all the work that was needed. It was a gift you didn't earn. It was a gift you could never have paid for a gift you didn't even deserve, but God, you were, but God offered it to you anyway. This is a really important point to remember because one of the ways to understand this is that obedience to God follows, obedience to God follows our salvation. We're not saved because we obey God. We're not saved we're not, Saved because we obey God first. We're saved, that's why we obey God. We obey because we're saved. And if you get those mixed up, then you go through your life like this. You got it backwards. Obedience comes, I'm sorry, grace comes first, salvation comes first, obedience follows. Salvation is not a reward for the things we've done, so none of us can boast about it. Throughout the entire story of the Bible told from the beginning to the end of the scriptures, God's love and grace and mercy come first. And all of what God asks for, all of what we do as God's people is a response to God's initiative. God acts and we respond. God is always the initiator. We are always the ones who respond. We're not forgiven or loved or rescued because we're good people, because we earn God's favor. He simply rescues us. He simply loves us and forgives us because God is love. That's who he is. And allows us to answer the question, who are we? Knowing who God is allows us to answer the question, who am I or who are we? Because of who God is and what God has done, we were, but God... We are, oh good, nobody shouted out Penn State. I was afraid that was gonna happen. (laughs) Whew, thank you. That's for another conversation. Because of who God is and what God has done, we are, we are God's masterpiece. Verse 10, we are God's masterpiece. The NIV says we are his handiwork. Many of the English translations say we are his workmanship. In this, what it, what's the sense here is that we are God's trophies. We are like trophies, trophy work products for God, like, like an intricate wood carving or an incredible painting. Verse seven says, God wants to be able to point to us across the ages of time as examples of what his kindness and his mercy can, can do with people who were once lost in their sins, far from God, ugly, failures. Look what God can do in their lives. As I was thinking about that this week, I I remembered that there are many artists who work with junk or with trash or things that are discarded, and they make beautiful works of art out of them. And I have some images I wanna show you for those of you who are more visually oriented to just kind of cement this in your mind. Let's go back to the first one. Uh, The first one is a car that... I'm guessing there's some kind of form underneath, but all of what you see is decorated with discarded lottery tickets. (laughs) I'm serious. All of the color, the pattern, the all of that's from discarded lottery tickets. Second picture is, again, discarded lottery tickets. Look what you could do with trash. Now, I'm not sure I'd want to decorate my bedroom that way, but it is beautiful. It's pretty. It's interesting to look at, right? Another kind of... um, Something that's discarded is driftwood. Somebody made this lovely sculpture of a horse out of driftwood. And in fact, there are more, than, more, let's go to the next one. All made out of driftwood. Can you, have you ever looked at a piece of driftwood and saw those things, you know, come to life out of the driftwood you could see? Look at that one. This is all driftwood, and the last one is my favorite. That's incredible, look at the detail there. How how you would see that lying around and think, oh, I can make a lion out of this. My last one is for all of you you who are hunters. The best one, this is all made out of metal scraps. What a beautiful trophy you could make out of metal scraps or, or discarded metal. So maybe that'll help you to keep in mind when Paul says, you are God's workmanship. You are the trophies that God has made out of the, the remains and the brokenness of your life. So we are God's masterpiece. We are also alive in Christ. In verses 5, 6, and 10, he refers to us being brought back to life because of, in and through Christ, through the work of Christ. It also says in verse 10 that we are, uh, we are carrying out his mission. He has equipped us as his people to carry out his mission. So we're his masterpiece, we're alive in Christ, we are carrying out his mission. He invites us to join him in his mission. And in chapter five, not in the text we're looking at today, Paul calls us God's dearly loved children. God's dearly loved children. So we were, but God, we are his masterpiece, we are alive, spiritually alive, brought back to life. We're carrying out his mission with him, and we are his dearly loved children. Think of it like this. A young boy named Gregory, who's 10 years old, was once adopted by a rich man. A rich man had a large family. A large family, good health insurance, the man was kind and generous, and Gregory became his son by adoption. As the son of a rich man, Gregory shared in all the benefits that this rich man enjoyed. Gregory's identity was no longer fatherless, no longer unloved, no longer poor, abandoned, alone, and in poor health. No, none of those things were true anymore. Now he is a son who is loved and cared for. He's a son of a rich man. So Gregory himself is rich because his father is rich. He's not alone because he's part of a large family. He's not um, unhealthy because the rich man can afford all all the medical and dental care that's needed to repair his body and bring the nutritional deficits back up to speed or to remedy those. There's no way for Gregory to earn or to pay for this kind of favor. He just receives it as a gift. And his new identity is based entirely on who his father is. His new identity has nothing to do with the brokenness in his life and where he came from. It's not at all based on where he came from or what he can do for his father. And with a new identity, Gregory can live his life with confidence and security. And what would we expect to see? What would we hope to see from Gregory as he gets older, as he grows into a man? Well, we would expect to see gratitude, probably, right? Thank you for rescuing me. We'd expect to see obedience or cooperation with his father. We'd expect to see him become generous like his father. All of those things flowing from his new identity. Not because of who Gregory was, but because of who he is. Because he was saved and rescued, he's now able to be grateful, obedient, and generous because of who his father is and what his father has done. So when the tempter comes to Gregory and says in his ear, whispers in his ear, Gregory, you're not really part of this family you don't really belong here, do you? You're just a poor, abandoned troublemaker that no one loves. Is that true? No. No, it's not at all true. It may have been true at one time, but it's not anymore. Those things might have been true for him, but his father rescued him, took care of all the legalities. Gregory is a son He is a son of a rich father. He's now a rich, dearly loved son with a bright future. So when the tempter comes to you and whispers those questions in your ear, are they any more true than they were for Gregory? When the tempter comes to you and says, you're not really any different than you used to be. You're still a wretched person. You're still broken. You're still ugly and hopeless. You're still unloved. Is that any more true for you than it is for Gregory? No, it's not. It might feel like that sometimes because we're still on this side of heaven, this side of fully, full, fully restored life with Christ, but it isn't, those things are not true anymore. Your Father has rescued you. You are a dearly loved child of God. You've been brought back to life and to hope. You are a masterpiece. You are a trophy of the handiwork of God. The power of sin has been broken in your life. Your sins have been forgiven, and now you are free to live a life of gratitude, obedience, and generosity. Not because you're trying to earn or pay off what God has done for you, but because because God has transformed your life and you are no longer who you used to be. You were those things, but God intervened, and now you are a dearly loved child of God. Someone whom God wants to point to in the ages to come and say, look at what a magnificent result comes from my mercy and my grace and my kindness. We're free to live our lives as a lifelong expression of thanksgiving for who our Father is for what he has done in our lives and for who we are in him. Friends, brothers and sisters, let's walk together in the freedom and the joy and the gratitude of the dearly loved children of God, the one who is rich in mercy, rich in love, rich in grace, rich in kindness, the one who has become the main character in our life stories. Thanks be to God.